welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Two master sommeliers resigned from the court over inaction on calls to diversify the wine industry. England's hospitality industry to reopen on the 4th of July. 100-pound Turkish wine sells out. Counterfeiter jailed in China for selling fake Bordeaux wine. And as ever, our wine of the week. So before the news, our week in wine. And for me, it was all about Batonage, uh, the women in wine event that I've been helping organize. And this is the second week, and we wrapped up kind of the first part of the programming uh, with a panel session on defining gender across generations. So this featured wine make well, women from prominent wineries in California, and including uh, Beth Novak Milliken of Spotswood in Napa Valley, Jamie Araujo of Achendo Cellars and Trois Noir, her own brand in Napa Valley, and then Anna Keller uh, in Petaluma Gap with Keller Estate, and Jasmine Hirsch of Hirsch Vineyards in the Sonoma Coast, and all was mo- moderated by Kelly White. So it was interesting. One of the things you know that they talked about initially was last names and, and how that either defined who they were or didn't. And I thought that was a, a very interesting part of the panel because this also extends to international uh, wineries as well. There's many people that are carrying on the work of their mothers and grandmothers or fathers and grandfathers. Uh, so it was interesting to see how that informed their upbringing. I agree. I thought that was a really interesting way to start the session because last names do have an influence on people if they recognize them or don't recognize them. And I have to confess, I met Jamie Araujo a couple of years ago, and I did go in with the assumption, oh, she's an Araujo, it's going to be a really serious, heavy session about Napa Cabernet. And she is completely different from that. She's a lot of fun, very interesting and very intelligent. And she made the observation that because of her name, she actually left the country and went to uh, live in France to kind of escape people's perceptions of her surname, because it's such a big name in Napa. And so um, that session is all about uh, generational Uh, differences and moving on. And I thought it was a very interesting discussion. Agreed. And we have many more interesting discussions to follow with Batonage. We continue uh, this week and next week. So if if you are registered, please do tune in. One other webinar that I tuned into that I did not help organize was Unheard Voices in Wine. And that was organized by SOMCON and Diversity Wine and Spirits. Uh, with Leah Jones of Diversity Wine and Spirits, Philippe Andre, Dylan Proctor, Denise Bourne, Rick Airline, and Brene Royale, talking about diversity in the wine industry and all coming from the perspective of black wine professionals. So it was really profound, interesting uh, to hear their experiences and to hear about what everybody is looking to do moving forward to really correct this problem. And so that was part one that took place on Friday, and there's going to be a part two as well. So keep an eye out. Uh, It's under SOMCON. You'll be able to find all the details there. On another note, I attended a webinar this week uh, with um, the winemaker Pierre Peters, one of our favorite champagne producers. He's called Rodolphe, and he's part of the family, and he's been making wine there since 2008, and has actually been involved since the 1990s, following on from his father, whom it seems he had some disagreements um, about winemaking and the future of champagne. So he's quite adamant about the way he has advanced the winery, and it's hard to disagree with him because the wines are fantastic. One thing that struck me was when he was talking about blending. 
So blending in champagne is very important. He um, says he does not want to make single parcel or single vineyard wines. He, does, he, he believes that goes against kind of the spirit of champagne. Instead, he prefers to blend from different villages to create something which is very complete and very whole and very consistent from year to year as well, because non-vintage wines are just so important in champagne for the consumer to recognize the house style. So he kind of goes against that kind of Burgundian concept of single vineyard wines and really clings to a champagne's tradition of blending. But he does so in a way which is very uh, forward thinking and very much um, inclined towards really high quality wines. And the answer, as always, is in the wine themselves. And they are fantastic. So an interesting character. And did you catch this webinar at 3 a.m. as per usual for you? It was at the very friendly time of 1.30 p.m. on a Thursday afternoon. And who organized it? Uh, Skernick. So Skernick do uh, import a lot of very good champagne. And so they have been organizing these webinars. And um, it's fun to be involved in that. And we can't get to champagne, but I can uh, certainly tune in on 1.30 in the afternoon and learn all about Pierre Peters and their winemaking and how they're moving forward. And certainly saves you on the cost of travel. Now, on with the news. Three master sommeliers have resigned from the court over its inaction on the issue of racial equality and underrepresentation in the industry, following the Black Lives Matter movement, which has gained so much traction in recent times. The bureaucratic nature of the court, which requires all 12 board members to agree on a decision, has left many members and observers feeling that the court has failed to address the issue of racial diversity in the industry. Richard Betts resigned over the court's lack of action, followed by Brian McClintock, who stated, At this critical juncture in our history, we are afforded a golden opportunity to reach higher ground with racial equality. And if my values dictate that I am allied with Black Lives Matter, which I am, then it goes without saying that I should expect an organisation I am affiliated with to be razor clear on the issue of public support. Over the last couple of days, I have come to learn they are not. These resignations were followed by that of another MS, Nate Reddy, who posted, It is simply not acceptable to invest energy in an organisation hamstrung by an institutional memory and with capacities that are insufficient for the task at hand. Although the court's failure to step up to both the challenges and opportunities prompted by the Black Lives Matter movement is integral to these resignations, it's also clear that the court of master sommeliers faces an existential crisis following the cheating scandal that rocked the institution last year. Secretive white and male, the court is going to have to reinvent itself if it is going to survive. Well, these are some bold moves, and I do wonder what impact or influence this will have on other uh, wine and spirits certifications and organizations. Um, I do know from the webinar that I mentioned in our Week in Wine, uh, from Denise Bourne, who's the business development manager uh, for the Americas East and the Caribbean at WSET, was explaining in detail about the diversity uh, standards that they have at the WSET. But really, you know, some of this was very, was news for me, and I'm a and I'm a WSET diploma graduate, and I had no idea that WSET had such had such extensive had such extensive standards uh, to encourage and ensure diversity in their program the problem is is there's not a lot of transparency there i i myself did not know and i think many others in the public don't know that so i'll be curious to see what these other organizations will do to 
promote those things or to make the change if need be. The Institute of Masters of Wine did issue a quite long-winded statement and quite belated about this issue, about how they recognise they have not addressed these issues before, but now they are going to. So like a lot of institutions around the world, there's a lot of debate and soul-searching about what hasn't been done in the past and what can be done in the future. Let's hope there's real action. Right, and let's hope we can really identify those that are truly doing the work towards uh, ex- towards promoting diversity so that we can support them. <laughs> In England, this week saw the official announcement that pubs, bars, and restaurants will be able to reopen on Saturday, the 4th of July. It was also announced that the two-meter social distancing rule, which the industry had claimed would make reopening financially impossible, would be reduced to one meter, as is the case in France and Denmark. Pub and restaurant goers will be required to give their contact details on entering an establishment in order to trace any coronavirus cases. The reopening of the UK has not been without controversy, as people headed to the beaches and the countryside, in many cases not seeming to maintain their social distancing. Some Liverpool fans celebrating the team's first league title in 30 years also congregated in large crowds. As restrictions ease, it's going to be important to ensure that people do not become too lax in their social behavior. How to do so is the question. So it is interesting. I did see a, a couple of videos posted on social media about the coastlines of the UK and how people were gathering in large, large crowds along along the beaches. Didn't seem to be any social distancing in sight. And there's lots of controversy about the reopening and how quickly it's been done. Uh, cases in the UK are falling. And it's important to note that England is following a different track from Scotland. In Scotland, 15th of July is the projected date for the reopening of bars and restaurants. There are predictions that the bars will have to close very quickly, but we'll see what happens. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., reopening the economy has been swift, and there have been a rapid spike in coronavirus cases across the country, particularly in Florida, Texas, South Carolina, Arizona, and Alabama. In one instance, 16 friends went to an Irish pub together, and every one of them then tested positive, as well as seven members of staff. Although the rising cases is partly attributed to an increased number of tests, it would seem that the laissez-faire attitude of Donald Trump and various state governors, plus the widespread refusal to wear masks, means that the virus is not being successfully contained. This, of course, provides many challenges for bars and restaurants in opening safely, with the possibility of having to close once again. These remain uncertain times for the drinks and hospitality industries. It's strange here in California as we're reopening. Southern California is um, getting hit with coronavirus cases. Um, Up here in North California, we're, we're doing fine, but it's still weird that bars and restaurants are open. And gyms, where everybody sweats all over each other. Yes, we were just debating today whether you should go back to the gym, and we decided no. Not for the time being, but I do want to support local gyms, so that's not my reasoning. And of course, that is the issue everyone is facing. We want to support local businesses, but at the same time, we want everyone to remain safe and think about the long-term future. It would seem certain parts of the U.S., are pretty crazy in their attitude towards the refusal to wear face masks and um, the, the the complete spike in uh, the cases of coronavirus just because they've opened up too quickly and without any real long-term measures involved. So it's um, very strange times and very uncertain and very uneasy. 
wine from Turkey called Django, and made by producer Shamlija, was released earlier this year, retailing for £100 in the UK, the first Turkish wine to be marketed at that price. It's made from Cabernet Sauvignon and just 200 cases were made. Despite the price and the reputation of Turkish wine, and despite the downturn in the economy, it's already sold out. A third of the wine was exported, which helped push sales, perhaps showing that there is international demand for premium Turkish wine. Well, I remember my first experience with Turkish wine was in Izmir, and that was in 2013, I believe, or 2012. And it was at a uh, international bloggers conference, and they and Wines of Turkey sponsored the event. And so I had an opportunity to taste quite a few of them. And I admit, overall, the quality was not outstanding, but I did find a few outstanding bottlings among them. But then following that in, in other parts of the world where I've lived, I've never really seen Turkish wine have a share of the market. Well, most Turkish wine that we see here in the US, and I think it's generally true in the UK as well, is inexpensive. And it can be quite good for that price as well. The problem that Turkey has is that it has um, a quite extreme Islamic government, which is really um, anti-alcohol. So encouraging the uh, the production of wine is very difficult. So I think you have to be really dedicated to um, focus on quality wine rather than just inexpensive basic wine. And my sister is currently living in Turkey and she's been exploring Turkish wine. And like you say, she finds the quality quite variable. There's a lot of bad stuff, there's a lot of indifferent stuff, but there is that good wine as well that producers that are committed are making. Um, but I've never actually seen one for the equivalent of £100. That's pretty expensive. Well, maybe in the future we'll be able to try one of these, but I guess we're going to have to be quick, seeing as it sells out pretty fast. Yes, we'll have to wait to the next vintage, I guess. A couple of months ago, we reported on the pod um, Bordeaux winning a lawsuit against a Chinese producer associating its wine with the famous French region. It was viewed as evidence that the Chinese authorities were taking wine fraud seriously, and there was further evidence this week as a counterfeiter was sentenced to jail for 18 months after promoting fake Bordeaux at a wine fair last year. The counterfeiter was unnamed, but the details of conviction show that the fraud involved 10,000 bottles of wine, and the individual was fined the equivalent of 6,500 euros besides being sentenced, while the counterfeiting company was fined 13,000 euros. The sentence was welcomed by the CIVB, Bordeaux's trade body, and congratulated the Chinese authorities on their successful prosecution of the case. I think this is news that we're going to continue to report on, because it does seem that the Chinese authorities are taking this fraud seriously, and that they are protecting regions like Bordeaux, which have an international reputation, and that they understand that a wine from Bordeaux must be from Bordeaux. So I think we'll um, hear more of this news in the future. So let's just remind our listeners of why this turning point took place and why China is now actively uh, pursuing these counterfeit operations. And that's largely because of the work that the CIVB, the the trade body in Bordeaux, has been uh, lobbying for and working towards for for many years. Right, and it's not just uh, Bordeaux. Um, Also, Napa Valley has been very... um, adamant about getting their name represented in China, but Bordeaux is another famous region. I think it's because of the Chinese interest in these two regions, both Bordeaux and Napa Valley, has alerted the authorities to the fact that these wines are expensive, they're sought after, and that they are unique, they are their own thing. And this just parallels the rising interest in China in wine, and that 
a lot of people in China are interested in these wines. Therefore, there has to be regulation and rules um, monitoring the, the sale of these wines. And I think it also goes back to the fact that a lot of these wines, like cognac as well and whiskey, were used as the as part of the um, culture of gifting, where you'd give a bottle of wine or cognac to your boss to curry favour. And that was uh, banned. And I think there's now more awareness of what these wines are and that they should be uh, regulated in a proper way, which prevents corruption. And now for our wine of the week, which is Katie. Joel Taluo San Nicolas de Borgai Vie Vin 1995. Well, that's easy for you to say. Well, my French friends are going to be giving me a hard time after they listen to this. As would mine, I'm sure, if I attempted to uh, pronounce these names. Uh, but we have to admit that we don't drink as much old wine as we should. The reason being it's rare and usually expensive. Uh, but it does mean that we miss out on one of the joys of wine, its ability to develop with age into something complex and very different from when it was young. But this week we did get the chance to drink something a bit older, from 1995 in fact, and which didn't cost too much, just $30. The wine comes from... Domaine Joël Talouot who is the first producer in the appellation of Saint-Nicolas de Bourgay to a state bottle, and is made from vines first planted in 1934. Joël and his wife Clarisse bought the property in 1971, and now their grandchildren make the wine. In fact, since 1995 when this wine was made, the winery has changed names slightly to... Domaine Joël Talouot, Thierry Fultzenlogel. There's a mouthful. Yes, just making it even more complicated than it already was. But uh, Thierry married Joël and Carice's daughter, Veronique, and they both started working for the estate in 1993. And that is one of the fun aspects about drinking older wine. You immediately begin to dive into the history of the producer and the wine and learn what's changed since. So let's get into the wine. Well, it clearly had some maturity to it with aromas of mushroom, game, leather, but its acidity was still very fresh and the tannins firm, and there's still a pleasant herbaceousness to it. Cabernet Franc is one of our favorite varieties, and that's because in its youth, the wines are vibrant and fruity, but they have structure to age for decades, as this wine clearly proves. And if you're interested in tasting this wine or other examples of older Loire vintages, K&L have a pretty good selection with several different vintages, Joël Talouot from the 80s and 90s. In fact, we just saw that they have a Magnum of the 95 available for just $55. Tempting. It's crazy prices, isn't it, for wine that old and of very good quality. Well, that's what I've always loved about the Loire Valley is you get some really kickers of quality, but then not really the price tag to go along with it. Right. It doesn't have the reputation of Burgundy and Bordeaux, but I think it can uh, be extremely good quality. And I always snatch these bottles up when I find them because they're so much fun and so interesting. And we get to taste older wine. Good job that you do. I enjoy tasting them alongside you. Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. Join us next week for another Wind Up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us. Especially if the reviews are positive. That's right. See you next week. Cheerio. Cheerio.